Psalm 97. Let's read through the psalm. I might have you notice that starting in verse 90, we have gone into what the Jews would call the fourth book of psalms. They didn't have all their psalms together. Uh, And you will notice that these psalms, these sections, have a different flavor to them, and we'll talk about some of that tonight. Here's Psalm 97. The, The Lord reigneth. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlighten the earth, the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Confounded be all those who serve graven images who boast themselves of idols, worship him, all ye gods. Zion heard and was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth, thou art exalted above all gods. Ye who love the Lord hate evil. He preserveth the souls of his saints, he delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked, Light is sown for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. In the Lord's Prayer, or perhaps more accurately the model prayer, the prayer Jesus gave us to order our prayers by, there is a statement, Thy kingdom come. And... uh, there is some interesting things going on because in one sense, the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ has come. And in another sense, the kingdom has not come. Uh, For instance, the kingdom has come, we know, because, for instance, Colossians in chapter 1 says, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. God has already put us out of one kingdom, put us into another. Uh, We know that Jesus said to Nicodemus that unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom. And then later, unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. So the kingdom is here in one sense, in a spiritual sense. And if we're entering it, we must enter it now. And yet at the same time, we're taught to pray, Thy kingdom come. The kingdom is coming. It's here, but it's also coming. And uh, theologically, the Theologians call that the already, not yet, tension in the New Testament. There's a sense in which we're already, in the spiritual sense. For instance, we spoke briefly about this last Sunday morning, Ephesians chapter 2. You are raised with Christ to sit with Him in heavenly places. Are you with Christ in heavenly places right now? Yeah. Do you sense that you're with Christ in heavenly places? No, not me. It is something that is spiritual because of our union with Christ, and yet it's already, and yet it's not yet. You understand. Now, and that language helps explain a lot of the mysteries of the New Testament. There are certain things here, but they're coming. This is one of them. 
Well, I wonder if we've ever thought about what it would mean for God's kingdom to come. What's going to happen when His kingdom comes? And I mean by that in the final sense, in the consummate sense, in the sense in which His kingdom comes visibly, in power, and in glory. Well, here in this psalm, we get a sense of what that day looks like in a very poetic, metaphoric way. But nevertheless, that's what's being described here in this psalm. And as a result, you can sort of find themes here that you'll also find in other psalms. For instance, Psalm 18, which is one of my very favorite, by the way. Psalm 18 speaks of God coming and coming much like the description here. Or if, for instance, you look at uh, the day of the Lord phenomena in Matthew 24, that when the day of the Lord comes, oftentimes you see the same sort of phenomena described. And then some of this reminds you of the book of Revelation. Some of the, the figures of speech, the poetic and spiritual description of what will happen in the day when Christ's kingdom finally comes. It, you can take this and divide it into four sections of three verses each. It just sort of naturally falls out that way, so we're going to do it that way. And the first three verses speak of the coming of the Lord. Um, my friend E.W. Johnson, I mention him a lot, but one of the humorous things is that he warned his song leader that if they ever, ever sang uh, the battle hymn of the Republic at his church, that the song leader would be the song leader no more. And he said, have you ever read the second verse of the battle hymn of the Republic? where it talks about seeing the glory of the Lord in the campfires of the Union Army. That's a little hard for a southern boy to accept. But it talks about, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Um, that was then transliterated over to the marching of the Union Army in the Civil War. But anyway, all of that to say, what would the coming of the Lord look like? Notice the very first verse here. The Lord reigneth, the very first phrase of the first verse. Whenever the gospel in the Old Testament is spoken of, and I'm thinking, for instance, in Isaiah, that's the passage Paul will quote Romans about, how beautiful are the feet of them, that saith unto Zion, what? Thy God reigneth. That is gospel, that your God reigns, because this is being spoken to a people who are in captivity, the Babylonians have subjugated them. It doesn't look like their God is reigning. And yet the message comes that your God is reigning. Your God is in control. Your God is calling the shots. And so here the psalm starts, and this is one of those things that sort of runs through this section. Look back in chapter 93, verse 1, the 93rd psalm. How does it start? The Lord reigneth. Same words. Look in 96. Psalm 96, verse 10, Say among the heathen that the Lord reigns. Then look at Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigneth. You pick up a theme here, you just sort of sprinkle throughout these psalms this reminder that God is reigning. Or in this case, it would appear to be speaking especially of the messianic reign of the one who God has set on his throne as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's King. And there comes a time when that fact is going to be made known. 
And if you follow the verses here, you'll see that it is a time of great rejoicing for the people of God. Notice the earth is to rejoice and the multitude of the isles are to be glad. Now, the word isle, normally we would translate that or mean by that an island, but uh, the word is not really that. It's the coast, the coastlands. It's basically any land that you would reach from Israel by ship, which is just about every land when you think about it. In other words, the nations like Turkey, uh, Italy, Greece, that ring the Mediterranean basin to Israel, Israel, that would be the isles. That's the coast. Lands like America, which you reach by ship. In other words, whatever lands the waters touch. And if you look at a globe, that's pretty much all the land. All of those isles out there, the coasts, the far-off places, notice that they are to rejoice and be glad as well. There is an allusion in verse 2 of God being compassed with clouds and darkness. And if you think of the phenomena at Mount Sinai, that's exactly what was going on there. The cloud rested upon that mountain. We think of how often you see that, that, for instance, the high priest going into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement was to fill the place with smoke. The idea is is that there is a mystery about God. There is an obscurity that we never directly behold Him. He's coming. And I've often been asked, in heaven, will we see God? What do you think? No, why not? Good answer. Kissing up. (laughs) I don't think, even in glory, that we will ever see God. We will see God revealed to us through the person, through the mediatorship of Jesus. We will never see God directly. We are finite beings. We cannot behold the infinite God. We simply cannot endure it. His presence must be mediated to us. And when we look at the book of Revelation and we see the description of God's, the one seated on the throne, remember, was like a rainbow and you know, it's all this poetic. And then it's Christ, the Lamb, in the midst of that throne. That even in glory, that the presence of God will be mediated to us. I don't see any other possibility. That we will never directly, as the creatures of God, behold Him fully and face-to-face in an unmediated way. Now, that's my theory. I could be wrong. I hope I am. But I'm thinking that's precisely what the Bible teaches, that it is the fact that we will always behold God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is, after all, the image of the invisible God. He's the one that reveals to us God. To know Him is to know God. To see Him is to see God. Thomas, he that's seen me has seen the Father. That ought to be satisfactory for us. That we, don't, we need nothing more than that. But notice that even in this picture of God coming, He is still clouded. He's still obscured. He's still robed in, in clouds, in obscurity. That even then, we do not see Him completely as He is. And then verse 3, of course, as He comes, there is a fire that goeth before Him. So you see, His people being glad and rejoicing. On the other hand, you see his enemies being destroyed and destroyed 
by fire. We'll say more about that in just a minute. But his enemies are being swept away by fire while his people are rejoicing at the prospect. The day of the Lord's going to be a good day for some folks, not so good day for others. It will be a terrifying day for many. But it will be a day of triumph and rejoicing for the people of God. And then notice from verses 4 through 6, the effects of this day upon the earth. You'll notice that it is described as a day of great upheaval and calamity. It is bringing the status quo to an end. It is ending the age. His coming is likened to a great cataclysm. Uh, especially describe it by just about every kind of natural phenomena you can think of. If you think of something that just tears up your world, uh, what would you think of? Well, I guess I could think of a storm, lightning, thunder, that's employed. I could think of volcanoes erupting. I can think of earthquakes, the earth shaking, all of those tectonic and uh, seismic uh, types of activity that we associate with calamity. All of them are here. You'll notice that he is coming as in a storm there in verse 4 with his lightning going out, and that would seem to be his judgments. And then the earth resounding, shaking in response. Of course, we know a little bit about lightning and thunder. The lightning comes, the earth shakes. And that's the, that's the idea here. You'll notice as well that there is tectonic, volcanic activity going on. Uh, verse 5 speaks of the hills melting like wax. If God is coming like a fire, then the mountains are melting before Him. Now, what do you suppose that means? What would you be illustrating by mountains? Anything come to mind? Derek, you're shaking your head, so I'm going to pick on you. Volcanoes. Okay, there's... Here's the that that and that's a good picture of a mountain that's melting like wax, isn't it? Just overflowing. But figuratively speaking, yes, Daryl. Lightning and rain and mudslides. Yeah, I'm. I'm y'all are thinking literally here, and I'm thinking, yes, Matt. Uh, well, yeah, and notice that in this sense, the permanence is not permanent. The mountain is melting. Michael? Kingdoms, oftentimes in Scripture, kingdoms are represented by mountains. And so I, I would say to me, uh, and I think just looking through the prophetic language, that a mountain typically represents an obstacle of some sort. That which stands in the way. And I, I'm thinking particularly of the prophecy to Zerubbabel. Uh, Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. In other words, you look like a great big mountain, you look like an obstacle in the way, but in the, when, because I have called Zerubbabel to build the temple and so forth, you shall become a plain. In other words, the mountain shall be removed. Uh, Jesus spoke in those lang- that language, didn't he? If you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it shall be. I, I don't think he's talking about literally moving mountains, but it's talking about the removal of difficulties and obstacles, things that stand in the way of the kingdom, the rule of God. And notice that as God is coming, 
these mountains, which in normal times would speak of permanence, that which is immovable, that which we have no power over. I mean, the mountain is about as solid and permanent a thing as we can think of, but when God comes into the picture, that which seemed to be permanent is permanent no more. The mountain melts. It's done away. The obstacles are completely... It's sort of like being in the way of a steamroller. You know, you run over a Coke bottle or a can with a steamroller. It had size, it had shape, but once the steamroller rolls over it, it squished flat. It's the same picture that these things that are in the way of God suddenly are completely destroyed and wiped away. And notice in verse 6, even the heavens themselves join in the process. In other words, we not only have earthly phenomena, the storm, the volcanoes, the earthquakes, we even have the heavens cooperating to declare the glory and righteousness of God Almighty to all people. So there is this just huge display of God's glory that is going to happen. I, I Again, I... I realize that a lot of times in Scripture, the Scripture uses very poetic and um, apocalyptic language. Uh, talks about the sun being dark and the moon turning to blood, things of that nature. But it would appear that whatever is meant by that, when we're talking about the final day of the Lord, when God reveals Himself, The book of Revelation speaks of the heavens being departing, rolled up like a scroll. And the great phenomena that nothing, absolutely nothing, can stand in the way of God Almighty. No matter how permanent, how solid it appeared, how much of an obstacle, it will in that day collapse, be considered as nothing. And so, that brings us to the next section here, the influence upon those who see this happening in verses 7 through 9, you'll notice we have the influence upon the heathen man, and then we have the influence that this has upon God's people. And First of all, let's start with the pagan, the heathen man in verse 7. It says confounded. And the word confounded here means confused and ashamed. Be those who serve graven images who boast themselves of idols. Now, we're too sophisticated, aren't we, to worship idols today. Aren't we? You got yours? You want to name some for us? Some in your wallet. We worship the almighty buck, the almighty dollar. It is our, you know, we think that we are far above the heathen. After all, they worship, you know, birds and wild things. Of course, we've got folks that around here in Memphis that worship tigers and razorbacks, and you know, we're, we're no, not us. We're too sophisticated to worship things like that. And then material things. Well, what 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 really is an idol? What notice it's the things that are graven images, the things that are material and man-made. They are made things. And notice, made by man's hands. They're the things that we worship and we serve them. We bow down to them. No man can serve God in mammon, says Jesus. Mammon being the word for just material possessions. You can't bow down to both. There's coming a day when God says do this and mammon says do that. We're going to find out who your master is in that day. It's an interesting thing that the word for idol 
in the Old Testament, and it is the word that's used here in this verse, who boast themselves of idols, that word is a word that means you could translate it vanity or you could translate it nothing. Nothing. Do you get that? They boast themselves of nothings, of vanities. In other words, it's not a something, it's a nothing. They have boasted. Now, we boast in our football teams, we boast in our heroes, our achievements, our military victories, and so forth. We are boasting in nothings. Uh, The foolishness of men who would bow and serve the creation rather than the Creator. That we are looking at something that's nothing. It may look like something, we think it's something, we boast in it, but in this day... What we thought was something will turn out to be nothing. And that's the language of the prophets, isn't it? I, I use Sunday morning, the, in, I guess as in Sunday school, yeah, we talking about the two different weights, two different bushels, bushel baskets. And the prophet Isaiah again in Isaiah 40 speaks of the nations, all of the nations of mankind being likened to the small dust of the scales. And you ladies, you go into grocery store, you get your fruit weighed on the scale. Do you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's some dust on there. That's going to throw the weight I'm, I don't want to buy that dust. I'm going to get a rag and wash that dust off before you weigh in my... They'd think you was a little nutty, wouldn't you? I mean, the dust of the scale is so small, so inconsequential, it's, it's just nothing. And notice that the prophet Isaiah says, all the nations of the earth are accounted to God as nothing, as the small dust of the scale, as the drop of the bucket. And again, that's as you pull the bucket up to the top of the well. Some of it sloshes out. I remember those days. It's hard to get the bucket to the top without some of it sloshing out. And you don't say, oops, it got halfway up. I see a drop dropped out. Let me put the bucket back down there. I can't have that drop. You don't worry about the drop. It's just a drop in the bucket, as we say. It's nothing. And that's how all the nations of mankind compared to God are like the small dust of the scales, the drop of the bucket. They are, and this is Isaiah's words, less than nothing. I don't know how you get less than nothing. <laughs> but, the, but the thought gets across that we're talking about something that is just absolutely gigantic. And over here, there's nothing less than nothing. And in that day, all the things that men have put their stock in, their trust in, the thing that they have served, will in that day be seen to be nothing. And so you begin to see that this is going to be a bad day for some folks. We're talking about having a bad... Oh, that's Derek, having a bad hair day. I told him every day for me is a bad hair day. I don't know what a good hair day is at this stage of life. But this is not going to be a good hair day for a lot of folks. This is going to be a day of awakening to reality. That the God that they have thumbed their nose at, and and we're in a culture today that is doing precisely that, the God that they have thumbed their nose at and mocked and caricatured is the God with whom they have to do. And all of their refuges and all of the gods, the idols in which they have trusted are going to be seen in that day as nothing. Nothing. Notice the last statement there. Worship Him, all ye gods. The word translated God here in the Hebrew, or gods, is the word Elohim. And as some of you know, that is a word that sometimes we use to refer to Jehovah God. But uh, that's not the case here, obviously. Um, 
there are several things it could refer to. Uh, number one, we have seen in Psalm, where was it? Psalm, mm, the number slips my mind, where uh, the psalmist says, Ye are gods, but ye shall all die like men. In that psalm, it's talking about men who are judges of other men. In other words, they're gods in office. As far as an official sense, they're like gods to their fellow man. We'd say a judge who is trying your case. Well, he's like a god to you. And and that's the way the word is used there. Those who are in authority over others. Doesn't mean they're gods by nature in an ontological sense. You remember that word? The ontology of something is its actual nature. They're not gods in nature, but they're gods by office. The second way of looking at it is that this is speaking of they... You remember Paul says there's only one God, though there be many that are called gods by the heathen over in 1 Corinthians. And so this may be referring to those things that man calls gods. It could mean, even a third sense, that much of the time in pagan idolatry, what they call a god is nothing more than a demon. Remember that Paul brings that up in writing to the Corinthian church that these temples, these idol temples where they have a communal meal worshiping their gods, they're really having fellowship with demons. So this could mean the angelic power that is masquerading as a god behind the idol. I sort of think that's probably what's going on here because of the previous statement about the idols and the graven images being nothing. That the the demon that is masquerading as a god is now commanded to worship the one true God. But at any rate, notice that uh, all is to be subjugated to him. And then on the other hand, verse 8, here's the flip side. Zion and the daughters of Judah now speak of the people of God. And notice that while these are confounded and ashamed, the people of God hear and are glad, the daughters of Judah rejoice because of thy judgments. Um. Do you think you'll be rejoicing in the day of judgment? You hope you better be. Now, why wouldn't you be rejoicing? Some of us are hesitant to say that, aren't? Pam, why, why would you be hesitant to say I would be rejoicing in the day of judgment? Okay, you're first of all, you're 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 conscious of your own failings. I think that would be part of it. Do we want to really be called into account before God? Anybody else have another reason? I can certainly sympathize with that. Oh, to see especially people we love, our family, our people we're friends with, fellow workers, seeing them destroyed in judgment and so forth. We we have a hard time thinking of how could I possibly rejoice at that prospect. But there's some truth here that we have to come to grips with the fact that there is a line between lost and saved. And there's no middle ground. You're either in the kingdom or you're not. You're either for Christ or you're against Him. You're either a beloved friend and brother and sister or you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. There really is no middle shades of gray in between. 
We have those in our family. I'm just like you. We have folks in our family that we dearly love, but we recognize they are lost, and they're lost as a goose. And if they could, they would pluck Christ off the throne. In other words, our allegiance, the end of the day, has to be with Christ, more so than mother, father, wife, husband, son, daughter, That's what Jesus meant. If you don't hate them, and not hate in every sense, but compared to Him. Remember that love in the biblical usage is you're going to do something for that person. When you hate them, you're not going to do it for them. And that we will, well, that's back to you can't serve God and mammon. You're going to love the one and hate the other. You're going to obey one And you're not going to obey the other. And so you're going to love them or you're going to hate them. And there's a sense in which, although on another level we love them, they're our family, they're our friends, but on this level we love Christ. And if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, says the last verses of 1 Corinthians. Did you get that? If any man love not, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Let him be cursed. So there's a strong dividing line. To us, it looks like various degrees of being a Christian, various degrees of being lost, but there's no such thing. We're either in or we're out. I don't see anywhere there's any middle ground, folks. We either believe the truth or believe a lie. We either love the Lord or we don't. One or the other. And so in this day, the Christian can't help but rejoice that the Lord is being glorified. The Lord is showing Himself for us. He's coming for us. He's showing Himself on our side. He's vindicating us in the midst of all of this. We were dealing... How'd I get down here? I'm supposed to be up there. Anyway. I'm slipping into this last section, okay? Verses 10 through 12. Because this is the exhortation then of what we're supposed to do. In the meanwhile, back at the ranch. In other words, the day of the Lord isn't here yet. So in the meanwhile, what do we do? In this day of already, not yet, we're in the already, in a sense, we're also in the not yet part of this. So how then do we then live then? To mutilate. Francis Schaeffer's title. How then should we then live then? What do we do in the meanwhile? Back at the ranch. How do do we live? Well, notice, I love this in verse 10. Ye who love the Lord hate evil. Number one, if you're going to love the Lord, hate evil. You say, well, I love God. Well, how come you don't hate evil? You You ever thought, we live, we were dealing with this last night. Why, this is fresh on my mind. We were talking about some of the new stuff. Michael, you you probably remember our Postmodernism, uh, the, the the medieval man looked to the church to have the answers. The modern man looked to science to have the answers. Postmodern man says there are no answers. And so the thing we we were dealing last night with a guy who is trying to deal with the question of election and predestination, all God's sovereignty by basically saying that God, he believes God is a sovereign God, but he believes that man is absolutely sovereign in his free will. 
And you're saying, well, wait a minute, how does that, wait a minute, you can't have it both ways. You can't, what do you mean? You can have this or you can have that, but you can't have both of them. But to postmodern man, you can. You know, we've always thought, and he was saying that his philosophy is that we've got to throw out Western notions of causality and first causes. Now let that sink in. In other words, all we've done in the Western world in our notions of cause and effect that basically has produced the industrial and scientific revolution, we, we need to sweep that away. We need to throw that away because that's not the way the Bible talks. It doesn't talk in terms of causes or first causes. In other words, you can have God being the first cause and we can have you being the first cause. And there's no contradiction. You can have it both ways. Well, anyway, all of that to say, the psalmist doesn't quite see it that way, does he? If you love God, then hate evil. Well, wait a minute. Why do I have to hate evil to love God? Because there's no evil in God. If you love who God is and what He is, then you must of necessity hate evil. It's sort of like God is light, wrote John in 1 John, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So no wonder those who love darkness hate the light. Can't have it any other way. And notice here that here is one of the great tests of whether we truly love God or not. That all of those who love the Lord need then to depart from evil. I'm sort of mingling this with what Paul wrote Timothy. The pillars of the, of the kingdom of God stand firm. The Lord knows those that are His. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Those are the two principles on which this kingdom is founded. That's the remember the big pillars, the two one of them is named Boaz, what's the other name? Robert, you're supposed to know this stuff. As you went into the temple, they had those two huge pillars. They call one Boaz and the other not Boaz. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember. But anyway, here are the two pillars of the our temple, of this kingdom. The Lord knows those that are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Can't be any other way. Faith and repentance go together like this. You can't have one without the other. You cannot turn to God without turning away from sin. It's not going to happen. I was reading again my brother E.W. Johnson. Somebody had sent me something he had written. And he had a, he had a knack of putting it in a very special way, saying that we're saved by faith. But that faith is a faith that loves God. And that love is seen in repentance. It never comes without repentance and without a wholehearted desire to serve the God that we love and we trust in. Okay, first of all, that's the first thing we're going to do. You love the Lord, then depart from evil. Separate yourself from wickedness. The second thing is to rejoice in God's preservation. He preserveth the souls of His saints and His deliverance. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. In God's providence, He is preserving us and He is delivering us. To deliver you is just another fancy way of saying He's saving you. He is saving me in the midst of this evil world. 
I am being preserved and I'm being delivered. He's doing that for me. Anybody know what preserves are? You ladies put you up some preserves. That means it keeps. Doesn't ruin, doesn't go bad. We've been preserved by the power of God. His preserving hand is upon us. I got I'm not going to show this to anybody. It was given to me in confidence. Our dear brother Jerry Bridges uh, sent me an envelope, big thick envelope this week, of what he was thought would work into a book, another book. Instead, he says this is far, far too personal for me to share with the general public. But I'm sharing this with a few of my closest friends, and I'm certainly humbled to be counted in that number. And what it is, is a pretty good size manuscript of the ways God worked in providence in his life. Starting when he was quite young up until the present time when he's just had this heart surgery. Of the various ways that God in his providence has delivered him until this very hour. And he sort of prompted me. I, You know, I'm thinking when I... When I uh, I was about to say, when I get to his age, I don't think I'm ever going to make it to his age, but uh, one of these days I'd like to sit down and do the same thing. I'd like to make a record of the amazing providences that I've experienced in my life at the hands of my God. I, I shared with you when I was about 10 years old, almost getting my leg ripped off in a power takeoff of a tractor out in the middle of the field one day. And I still can't explain why it didn't happen. I don't know. I don't know what happened. All I know is one instant I'm looking down and my leg's about to be wrapped around this shaft coming out the back of that tractor. And the next instant I'm over here on the other side of the tractor somehow. How I got over there, I have no clue, with one half of a pair of blue jeans on. And the other half of the blue jeans wrapped around that shaft. All I know is that I usually wore a belt. If I'd have worn a belt that day, I'd have died. How that happened, I have no clue. All I know is God delivered me. My friend Mike, that you're going to meet, same thing on that river. He'll tell you, I should have drowned. should have drowned. He saved my life, providentially. Over, and, and, and you can tell me the same kinds of stories, can't you? If you're a Christian, you can point back to things in your life and you say there's no reason why I should have survived that, why that happened just like that. And so his book, and I can't share it with you, ask me not to, has sort of prompted me to do the same thing. I would like to sit down and write a book of the providences of God. And that's what, notice, that what are we to do in the meanwhile? We love God, depart from evil. But secondly, let's rejoice in the providential and preserving hand of our God. The mysterious ways He's worked in our life to put us right here, right now, at this place. Here we are, in this time, What look back at the string of things that had to happen for this to happen. What amazing things. And so, that's the second thing. And then, verse 11, light is sown for the righteous. It's like sowing seed in the field. Well, God sows light in the lives of his of the righteous man. It's like God is giving him insight. It's given him well. It's given him light. He's been redeemed out of darkness into this marvelous light. We see. We can. We can see. 
I, uh, I keep referring to Daryl in this, that Daryl will be the first to tell you that God took his sight away to give him sight. Had to take his sight away for him to really see. And therein lies the, the thing that we are rejoicing that God has shown us things, marvelous things, wonderful things, and other people don't even get it. They don't see it. They don't look at it. It just right over their heads. What a thing that God has given us, this wonderful light, this understanding of things. It's sown for the gladness in the upright in heart. He has made us glad. We're in this world. It's not, Conrad Murrell calls it this death camp. It's a pretty good way of putting it. This death camp. And yet in the midst of it, God gives us a song in the night. He makes our hearts rejoice and be glad. And so the last command, rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, give thanks at the remembrance of His holiness. In the meanwhile, till the kingdom comes, here's what we're supposed to be doing. Rejoicing in His goodness, marveling at His providence and His deliverance in our lives, basking in the light that He's given us in the gospel of Christ, and rejoicing in His name. Well, therein lies a sweet duty. Right? Anybody, you got any comments here? We wind, wind this up. Anything come to mind, Charles? Mm-hmm. Right, we all do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it comes to mind when you say that, Charles. When In the Old Testament, when you had a godly king come upon the scene after they've worshipped idols, what did that godly king do to the idol? Destroyed it. Didn't convert it. Didn't reform it. Destroyed it. In other words, I'm trying to think of a single time where the idol somehow was kept and put to a good use. In other words, if there is something in our life that stands between us and God, it has to go. Now, there's things in the world that are good things in the sense that they're not evil. There's no evil attached to them. We we enjoy food. We enjoy our homes, our family, so forth. And But there's a fine line, Paul says, as users of this world, but not abusers. And therein lies the distinction, that we're given permission to use the world, but we're not to abuse it. And when we make an idol out of it, it's abused. And the thing, when you were saying that, Charles, the thing that stuck in my mind is what Hezekiah did to that brass snake. Remember Moses had put that brass snake on the pole that had healed all those Israelites. And we learned that in Hezekiah's day that Israel had made a relic out of that that they were worshiping. And what did he do? He went and ground that thing to powder and threw it in the river and called it Nehushtan, which means brass snake. <laughs> That's all it was. It's a brass snake. Notice that was a legitimate relic of their history. And yet, they were snared into worshiping it. How subtle Satan is. That even we worship the good things from our own 
history that God used, but we fail to see that they can become misused and become an idol. Yeah. Good thoughts. Humbly, uh, terrifying thoughts, but good thoughts. Yeah. Derek? Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to give our idols up. Yeah, we love them. Yeah, and God's hand of chastening comes, and oftentimes that's what it takes for us to ever surrender our loves, those things that would prevent us from wholeheartedly following the Lord. And it's subtle, isn't it? That that fine line between using the world, use as as Dave says, those green pieces of paper in your pocket, those have a use, don't they? They're usable. But abusing them, that's the other side of the story. Where, in other words, where do we cross the line between the legitimate use of this world's stuff and abusing it? And, and clearly, when it has a power over us to control us, that becomes idolatry. Anybody else? Anybody see anything else here? Uh, I mean, we've been sort of stuck on the idol idea here. The, yes, ma'am. Please what? <laughs> if I would squeal, if I will, if I will break my trust to my brother and tell you these. Oh, when I do. Okay. Well, most of y'all have heard all my stories, but uh, I tell you what, O.E.W. Johnson, he used to say of me, he said, I don't believe you're going to live long enough to write another song. Because I'd write a song about all these escapades. And he said, I don't think you're going to live long enough. Between the river drowning, crashing in an airplane, and getting lost in the mountains in the middle of winter, and uh, there's a bunch of stuff that I look back and just wonder how in the world, what in the world, uh, so easily could have could have gone the other way. And yet God was faithful, and here I stand. For how long, I don't know, but for, for a little longer because of the preserving hand of God. Yeah, Craig? Yeah, those are the ones that are obvious. You think of how many times we didn't even know it was coming. We had no clue that we were preserved. We, we didn't know. We know enough to realize that there were times we were in great danger and we've been preserved and we didn't have enough sense to even know the danger was there. The, the too slow to... Yeah, yeah, here's a guy, I'm mad at him because he won't speed up and I get caught in the light and look what happened right up ahead had I been able to be up there how many times God's hand interferes with our plans and we get all bent out of shape about it and yet it was His interference that spared our life. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my. And so, that ought to teach us, when we think about it, that ought to teach us to never ever complain at God's providence. That whatever he does is good and right. 
He's too wise to make a mistake. He's too good to do evil. And so when I gripe because that driver won't speed up or when that light turns red and I'm guilty, guilty, uh, oh my, how foolish I am. I'm basically saying I know better than God what will be happening in my life. All right, let us um, close tonight with a time of prayer and ask um, those things on your heart to do and